This week on Inside Marketing, I'll be looking to the year ahead as we ask what are the mega trends in media and what brands are doing in these spaces. We'll also give some advice on how brands need to start thinking and testing in these areas. So join me as I talk to Dan Caladine, head of Media Futures at Cara, only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Caldine, who's head of Media Futures at Dentsu International. Welcome, Dan. Hello. How are you doing? How's life? How's um, work? And how's London? And how's sentiment? And how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's well, it's it's sort of entering the second month of working from home for you know the nth time. Yeah. We've uh, we were we we've effectively been working from home since mid December or something. So I'm just getting used to you know how all that works and, and things like that. And and we were we were chatting before we started recording about you know the 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 pros and cons of working from home versus working in the office but no i'm i'm fine i'm missing people but i'm fine basically mm. yeah i've yeah i've been in i've been in I'm kind of in and out a couple of days here a day here even so i've I've been in a bit the office has completely changed but i think there's about 10 people in today which is good so there's signs of life and we're expecting restrictions to be significantly eased if not lifted fully in ireland so i think we'll be back to the office sooner than we think which um which again will be an, uh, which will be well, it'll be a complete readjustment again because I'm used to not going in now. So I'm used to going in maybe once a week, maybe you know twice a week. So, but normality is good if we get back there. So look, I'm conscious of your time, and I'm conscious you're on a circuit of of, of um, probably a man in demand with with um which are trend report because it's brilliant. And I, I always look out for it every year, so I think it's brilliant in the amount of work um and effort that goes into it um and just the, the kind of quality of of the content is brilliant. So on that note, just before we kick off. Like, how long have you been doing this? I think I asked you this last year, but how long have you been doing this? And I now I find with trends, because you kind of tend to look, to be a trend, you have to look in a kind of a broader horizon. So how do you, do you find that you're just kind of in the same territory every year looking at trends going, oh, it's the same things again? Or how often do these big trends change? Or how difficult is this to, to find a new angle on things? Well, I've been doing this. I've been I've been involved in writing the trend reports since about 2010. I think I think we did 10 trends for 2010 as as like the the kickoff. I think I'd done it as an email, mm-hmm. as a newsletter before that. Um, and there was certainly a phase I think when we were sort of in danger of repeating things. There was you know mobile again or, mm. or location based things again and things like that. Um, we sort of have an artificial rule that you don't you don't put one thing in from one year to another so if you have virtual reality one year you don't really have it in the next but then you can just get around that by renaming things and yeah and taking a different angle on it but obviously in the last couple of years sort of everything has changed so we're not necessarily scratching our head and thinking okay we've only got five this year what can we do Mm. um so so at the moment there's sort of no shortage of ideas there's no shortage of events in the world and what you're really trying to do is to spot patterns between different things between different industries um you know see something which is suddenly that much more more popular whether it be in things like viewing numbers or in revenues generated or things like that so but also i'm very lucky because i'm just naturally curious by nature mm. and i'm forever you know looking to see the latest technology news the latest media news and those sorts of things and then i'm quite good at spotting patterns and spotting connections between different stories 
So you're, you become well used to kind of finding those angles on things. So um, so we won't see the metaverse. Well, I bet you we will see the metaverse next year. But anyway, I, I'm going to I'm going to call you out on that. I guarantee <laughs> I, we'll see the metaverse you know next what? year. You know what? I bet I bet we will as we well. Will. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just I bet fat. we'll see the metaverse. And I bet we'll see some variation on NFTs as well because those those areas seem to be pretty unstoppable at the moment. Absolutely. And in fact, yeah, you know the, the deal in the last couple of days about Microsoft yeah, Microsoft plan. Activision. I mean, that's really all in it. That's that's very much related to the metaverse and the massively growing importance of gaming within people's yeah. entertainment lives and things as well. No, definitely, definitely. So I'll forgive you if we're talking about the metaverse next year. That's fine. So just the way it's structured. So you've got kind of three mega trends, if you will, and then some smaller sub trends underneath each of those. So the mega trends, as identified in, in the in the report, are the prolonged pandemic brand citizenship and identity so just give me an overview of an overview or a flavor for those mega trends and then we'll, we'll jump into each one and look at the sub trends underneath them sure so as you say three mega trends so the first one of those is what we're calling the prolonged pandemic and this is really the idea that this is going to be with us for a while so i think when we were talking last year maybe we were saying you know, we got vaccines now, things should be fine by summer 2021. We now know that that's not the case. We now know that it's it's going to be a bit of a marathon. Um, you know, that there will probably be more lockdowns in some form or another. There'll probably be more, or there'll almost certainly be more variants that will be, you know, a twist on what we know at the moment. So people will con- continue to need to be cautious. And so I think, it's, so, this, so this mega trend is really all about the different aspects of how people are going to be adapting over the next five years, what, you know, how many cinemas we're going to need in five years' time, for example, how many high street stores and how the world potentially may be changing. In in a way, I think we ain't seen nothing yet. I think so many things are going to change. And again, being a bit of a news junkie, being continually curious about the world, every day seems to bring new sort of, you know, unexpected consequences of things happening. I saw something... um, I saw something the other day in, in somebody's newsletter where they said that uh, I think one of the biotech companies was laying off a whole load of salespeople because a lot of sales calls are now done by Teams or Zoom or, or, or similar. So you don't need, you know, you literally don't need people out on the road. And so somebody could do 10 calls in a day rather than do three calls in a day. And so, you know, that getting rid of sales staff was something that people hadn't really considered as a as a consequence of of the pandemic. But these are the sorts of things that that are really just coming to light. Yeah, yeah, it's going to have a significant impact. All right. Um, so on on the prolonged pandemic, now the, the first sub trend that you talk about is is omnichannel everything. So and it's basically the idea that the, the virtual and the physical world or experiences are going are going to seamlessly blend um, online and in the real world. So can you just run me through? Because what I love about the report is, which is great as you run through this, you give some really nice examples of what you mean by that. I, I sometimes find that when I'm reading trends and they're very conceptual or language is quite. I can be I can get a little bit lost in it, but you have some really nice practical examples of what brands are doing and what brands could do in a kind of point of view in that. So you just run me through what, what it is, give me some examples of, of, of what you meant by it. Um and let's take it from there. Sure. So the idea of omnichannel retail, I think, has been with us for quite a while, and it's things like click and collect. But what we're saying with this one is that 
everything is going to go to or you know almost everything is going to go to a similarly hybrid model in that it'll be very much up for the consumers to choose how they want to interact with the brand how they want to consume something and we see this with things like movies where disney is doing day and date releases of of their major movies um so if you want to stay in and watch it on a sofa you can do if you want to go to the cinema you can do um and you know we're also seeing this with things like conferences where you know ces by because of Omicron really was was an incredibly hybrid event this year, much more hybrid than the organisers had hoped for. Um, but I imagine we'll see that with CAN. We're obviously seeing this mm. with work. We were talking, again, before we started recording, we were talking about, I, I really like being in the office five days a week. You're much more happy being in a few days and being at home other days and stuff. And so it's very much, you know, making it flexible for people to really do what they want to do. And I think as time goes on, this is going to be the norm for both consumer and B2B companies and campaigns. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely. And it's interesting um, in terms of the cinema model, which probably impacted their total net takings in terms of making simultaneous releases in terms of the, the box office. But I've oh, read, totally. I've read, yeah, and I've, I've read a lot. So, I don't know what that looks like, that cinema model going forward. But I don't, well, I, I think there's, again, there's going to be an economic adjustment there's going to be you know it is kind of how many cinemas do we need how many how many films are going to be released in the cinema there was uh i i was doing some research for another report just before christmas and in 2019 there were nine movies globally that hit more than a billion at the box office and last year there was only one and it was looking like there wouldn't be any and then spider-man came out towards yeah. the end of the year and, and that got something like 1.4 billion um you know in the space for a couple of weeks or something so there are definitely films people do want to go and see in the cinema yeah but but it's but it's a sort of adjustment to you know maybe the more talky the more highbrow if you want to put it that way would actually work better on tv and maybe would work better as a two or three part series yeah. rather than the movie yeah definitely and and um also it might be kind of slower you know, kind of the numbers might creep up more slowly given just you think about the cinema environment, dark, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's it's indoors, you're sitting beside people. So people might be a little bit reluctant to go back. Um, But yeah, no, that's, it is really interesting because I, I love this idea of the hybrid because the conference, I, I think people genuinely miss the conferences. I, this came up a couple of weeks ago, I was saying, used to go to conferences and you, I used to think the, all the value in the conference was in the subject material that was presented on the stage. And actually quite a lot of the value in, in a conference, and most of the value actually comes from the mixing people, opportunities, mm-hmm. the conversations that happened in over coffee or things like that, the opportunities, the, the things that were not planned. So that you can't recreate that on Teams. So I think the hybrid model, but like keep it going. It doesn't have to be either or, but yeah, I think that's really interesting. On the, on the second one, um, which is called New Ways to Buy, and it, you know, we all know e-commerce accelerated rapidly during the pandemic. So um, you, in your report, you talk about how, how online commerce is going to continue to be more live and more immersive. So talk to me a little bit about some of the developments in e-commerce, what we've seen, what type of innovations. And I know, I know Asian markets are way ahead of, of, of um, Western Europe. So what types of things have we seen happen there that we think are going to come over here in terms of really ramping up that, that e-commerce experience? So there's a couple of things, really. So one is technology-based, where it's much more possible now to, to shop directly through screens. So, you know, essentially, we've had things like TV shopping channels. We've had things like infomercials for, you know, for, for certainly for the last 20, 30 years or so in the West. Um, what we're now seeing is this being sort of integrated into apps where 
you can watch somebody talking about something, then you can actually shop through the app you're in, whether it be Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, lots of different people are doing this. We're seeing a lot of development around this and we're seeing um, the big tech giants really investing massively in this because it's already really popular in Asia. We're also seeing TV become more shoppable. So there's a new ad format for YouTube in the States where if you're watching YouTube on your connected TV, it's now possible. Um, you know, you still get the skip ad button, but there's another button next to it if you're watching on your connected TV, like I say, which is sent to my phone. So if we were watching through my YouTube app on my on my TV, then it would send information about the brand in the advert to me. Oh, so right. I would then be able, to, be able to shop much more easily rather than, you know, Googling on my screen when I was watching TV or, you know, making a quick note on a piece of paper for myself. So there's some really interesting things happening technologically, but then also... There are some new services which have emerged, essentially taking the food delivery model and applying it to groceries or even some other goods where, you know, if you've if you're cooking something and you've run out of onions, you can just get on the app and somebody will bring you onions within 10 minutes or right. something. And so again, it's you know, it, it's something that didn't really exist before the pandemic, but the pandemic has just got people used to expecting things to be born mm. to them. And people are jumping into this space to to develop these these offerings. And, you know, you can't really trademark the ability to bring somebody something within 10 minutes. So I think a lot of companies are all taking the same idea and trying to compete in terms of, you know, who can do the best service and yeah. stuff, who can have the best selection. Yeah. I, I, just to pick up on, on on something you said there, the the whole idea like it's it's an obvious progression, but shoppable um, connected TV sounds like really interesting. And some of the things you described there, is there any enhancement on it? So uh, there's companion apps and there's things that can be looking at things on screen, and then I I have to second screen, I have to kind of, and if I'm looking at in my app, I'm I'm not looking at what's on screen. But in terms of innovations of what's happened, are there any are there any innovations in this space in terms of how the UX works, or is it all predominantly companion app based? So with things like the the shop attainment, the idea of, um, you know, somebody presenting something to you live on Facebook and then you buying within the app, there is, there's genuinely new user experience within that. And with other ones, yeah, it's companion apps. Um, so you're watching TV, you need your phone with you as well. Mm. But I think as time goes on, it will become a lot more seamless. I think, I think it's, it's almost like, like a stepping stone you know, integrating with your phone is like a stepping stone before the whole thing is just integrated in the same way that, you know, if, you want, mm. if you're watching something like QVC, you can actually order on your phone through their, their app or on their website or stuff. But this is just, it's getting much more integrated. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting space. And I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how big, I had Kieran O'Kane on two weeks ago and he was talking about ad tech and connected TV and he was saying that he's not sure how big the, the, ad tech opportunity is in connected TV because it won't it mightn't it mightn't have the same opportunities it had in the USA but it's, it's definitely the whole area of e-commerce is really interesting which moves me on to the next point now, now Reed Hastings Netflix has has said more than once and I mean he's sworn by it he said that Netflix will always remain ad free bit of a problem for people in our in our business but um, it always felt like a, re, a missed opportunity to me because yeah I know they want to keep it kind of clean from a U, UX point of view and, and keep it ad free but they got to charge people for it. So we're going to pay twelve ninety nine or whatever it is. Um, and there could be a light model where you accept a couple of ads and you accept them willingly. And, you know, you accept that that's how you're getting the cheaper sales model. You could, you could have a completely ad funded model. You could have a five ninety nine one ad model. Um, but he's always said they won't do it. Now, 
you, in your report, you've kind of talked about some interesting things or some movements or kind of mood music developments in the space of Netflix in terms of how they might be warm enough to advertising. Can you just talk about some of those? Well, it's purely speculation, really. But if the technology is there to allow people to shop through their TV, then I think it's quite possible that Netflix might try to do that sort of thing. And I think it's easier to imagine Netflix um, doing some sort of affiliate model or getting some sort of cut from you know, partnership products, because I think more of the things you see on Netflix now have uh, have brand partnerships with them. If you've watched the new series of um, Emily in Paris, there's a lot of branded content. Sorry, there's a lot of brands within that. Mm. Um, and if you and Netflix have set up an online shop, and if you go there now, there's lots of. Um, I, was, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and they now have like an exclusive sunglasses line that they've created with Emily in Paris. And uh, so, right. so I think they're kind of monetizing in that way, but at the moment it's very disjointed because you kind of have to know the shop is there. There's no button at the end of the program to say. Yeah shop emily sunglasses or something uh, so yeah. so it's, it's purely speculation i think i think netflix is experimenting around you know in, in different countries around you know offering a free model that might be at some point ad supported or something but i think they must they must really fear the the, the danger of cannibalization so yeah. if you can get people to spend 12 pounds a month or whatever um on your netflix then you're definitely getting 12 pounds a month from them whereas yeah. if it was an if it was a partly ad funded model you might only be getting five pounds and then the rest would be much more and and you'd have to be selling the advertising for an awful lot to get mm. you know to, to be getting to be getting basically sort of you know five or seven pounds a household or something yeah absolutely yeah no it's more there's more volatility in that um advertising model and you're right so they, they i mean they'd hope that it might bring in people that might give them far greater scale and then they might and of course they'll have to then yeah. if they got into that business they have to start showing you know numbers around views impressions whatever you want to call it they got to get into reporting proper detail in terms of um, audience consumption of shows which which you know they kind of it's a bit of a black box at the moment next one and what did it take us uh 20 minutes maybe so um virtual worlds aka the metaverse now a lot of talk about this recently, and we just chatted off off Mike about it in terms of big news. Microsoft, um, the last couple of days, gaming has been doing virtual universes, whatever you want to call them, metaverses, virtual worlds for years and years. Um, it's nearly ten years since since Facebook acquired Oculus. So, and we talked before about how trends, you know, the same things come up. It was the year of mobile for seemed like about twenty years, then it was the years the years of VR and AR for years and years. Um, been talked about, dabbled in. But it, there seems to be, according to your trend report, like in terms of, I think Oculus was the most downloaded app. I, I saw something about this yesterday on, on Christmas Day, I think globally. There was a huge spike in hardware sales. So whatever people are doing, it seems to finally all the talk about whether it was um, just really clever PR in terms of Facebook, what they've done, they, they've kind of resuscitated this idea of virtual worlds. Um, do you think it's going to finally take off? And what do you think... Th- are the the growth opportunities outside of gaming? Because we all know gaming is huge, but outside of gaming, what are the opportunities for brands and what can they be thinking about? I think it is taking off, but I think it's taking off in some specific groups and in for some specific specific um, sort of demographics. I think it's one of these things which is probably going to take quite a long time to really hit the mainstream simply because 
you need to buy a dedicated piece of kit for it. And, um, you know, we've all got phones, but very, very few people relatively have got headsets, even mm. though they're now selling something like 10 million units a year. But I mean, you know, compared to phones, that's tiny. So I think it is definitely taking off. I think it's taking off in, in some sort of, some sorts of, um, in some sorts of markets for some sorts of use cases. What's interesting is we're getting new use cases emerging. So there are now quite a few apps that you can use for fitness with things like sword fighting and stuff like that. So instead of getting on a Peloton or similar, you might actually just be putting on your headset and then, and then giving yourself a workout that sort of way. So I think I think really interesting things are happening. But then also there's the whole B2B aspect of it in that we spend so much time, so much of our time now looking at screens, having meetings with uh, colleagues and clients all around the world, um, effectively in a version of a virtual world, you know, and, and we wouldn't have, we would have found this pretty painful to think about, you know, mm. two and a half years ago or something. And that, yet now we take it as completely normal. So I do think there is something, you know, you know, we're definitely more in tune with the idea of virtual world and more in tune with the idea of, you know, our our virtual, our digital identity, things like that, than we were before. So I think maybe it's less of a step for people to get their head around than it used to be. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, people donning their headset to do something, I think that's always going to be comparatively small just because the mm. logistics of getting devices into people's heads. And, you know, yes, you've got people like Facebook internally, you know, socializing in this sort of way, but that's because they own Oculus and they've all got headsets yeah. and stuff. Well, you you might, may, and maybe that kind of to accelerate that adoption, you might you might see the cost of the hardware come down significantly. Like I say, the, the Alexas, the, the connected homes and the, the cost of an Alexa is way cheaper than buying, um, you know, a, a speaker, that you, your Bluetooth speaker. So they may make a big bet in this and significantly reduce the cost of hardware. Or else they're selling so much of it, they might not, but it's definitely, it's an interesting one. Um, then the next one kind of related, I'm not going to go too deep on it because like I've read a lot about NFTs, non-fungible tokens in the last 18 months. I have a vague, vague, fairly kind of bluffers guide as to what they are. I know they're blockchain based and my head they're a, a digital proof of, of ownership of in my, a piece of art or a piece of content or a piece of music or that kind of stuff. So, is that what they are? Am I, or is that completely wrong? And also in terms of how do brands, so I get what that is in terms of things that exist in a blockchain that you own it, nobody else can own it. Um, what, what can brands be doing in this space or how, how do brands get involved? There's a couple of examples which uh, which we, which we've seen after the report came out. So these aren't actually in the report. One was again going back to the Spider-Man movie. Uh, what a cinema chain in the states did was they said if you pre-book a ticket for Spider-Man, we'll give you a Spider-Man NFT. So this and this is sort of totally in tune with the sort of people who go to see superhero movies and stuff. Mm. So very smart move. And you know, given that this is basically in in a pandemic or when people are quite cautious about going to the cinema, they had their highest or their second highest ever pre-sale for any movie for, for tickets in this cinema chain. So, you know, simply by saying, we'll give you an NFT if you buy the ticket. So mm. whether the NFT is actually valuable to that many people, we don't actually know, but it was a nice way to use NFTs to actually generate real mm. real revenue. It was it was a way of sort of thinking around the problem, having this, this collectible that Spider-Man fans would actually like. Um, another one is Adidas. They did this thing in the, one weekend a bit before Christmas where effectively they created a a sort of super exclusive membership club within Adidas, where if you joined this club, you would get access to, you get early access to new merchandise, new 
new exclusive sneaker lines they were doing and that sort of stuff. Right. And to join this club, you had to buy an NFT. Um, and they generated something like $20 million in the space of a weekend for selling people membership to this club. So you could argue that they could have sold membership to a club without doing NFTs. Mm. But the NFT mechanism, um, you know, sort of makes it very up to date, makes it very secure and things like that as well. Potentially, I think people could trade their membership of the club with other people if, you know, if subsequently they, um, you know, they didn't really want to be a member anymore. So I think, I, I think NFTs definitely a really interesting, uh, really interesting thing for some brands to look at, but also something which is super flexible. So NFTs are you know it could be different to an fmcg brand to a sportswear brand to yeah. a, a technology brand or whatever yeah yeah it's really interesting as i was on a call about this a global um dentsu innovation or learning session um and it was great but i kind of felt at the end of it jeez like i don't know i don't i, I don't know i'm not sure if i know how to do my job anymore in terms of how everything's going in terms of a metaverse and nfts but um yeah it all sounds quite confusing um, it was really well done because at the end of it, it kind of it's not as complicated as some of the language and the, the the terminology around it may may lead you to believe, but it's a fascinating area. Um, so I'm going to jump on to megatrend number two, which is all around this idea of brand citizenship. So there is two subtrends there. Let's talk about the the first one, the responsible rebuild. So one of the big um areas in, in recent years has been a huge pain point. Lots of kind of publicity around it. Is this the area of fast fashion? Um, and also generally a broader culture we have of like we're living a throwaway or disposable culture so do you think that I, I always see this kind of say do gap in terms of what people care about there's a huge amount of kind of talk at a macro level about sustainability and the environment and then what people actually do what they say and what they do is all very different because all boils down to I want they pass the onus of responsibility back onto the company they're not prepared to you know pay more for anything or you know you know, we we only really we only we only recycle to the degree we do domestically because it reduces the cost of our bins ultimately. Um, I think which is which is why we do it. So there's a benefit to consumers. So, do you think generally that consumers are conscious enough to to waste less in terms of this rebuild better? And and again, what are some of the nice things that brands are doing in this space that you can point to? I think so, but I think people just want things made easy for themselves. I think people don't want to be. The, yeah, I, th I think many people want to live more sustainable lives, but they want to buy soup which comes in a recyclable container. Mm. You know, they they want brands to make it as easy for them as possible to actually make these decisions and to do these things. And I think there's there's some really interesting things that have started happening over the last year or so, where we see more and more brands like Nike, like IKEA, get into this idea of extending the life of their products. So not simply, okay, you bought this thank you you know see you again when you want to buy something else but you bought this um if you still like it then great if you you know if, if it needs repairing then let us help you do that if you you know if you don't like it as much as you used to but somebody else could get some use out of it mm -hmm. then let's take it back let's you know maybe resold it if it's footwear and see if we can sell it on to somebody else or let let's you know so so i think there's lots of things happening around the supply chain where brands are really trying to think about the second life mm. of their products or really trying to extend the life of their products. I think that's really good. I mean, inevitably, there's still lots and lots of fast fashion out there. But I think we're seeing, you know, significant changes. There have always been brands like 
Patagonia that have done this sort yeah. of thing. But I think it's now becoming much more mainstream. I mean, you know, Nike, for example, is a much bigger company than Patagonia. Mm, yeah, and you see it in, I think, I don't know where it was, even Zalando or um, ASOS, I don't know where you can kind of, when you're buying something eligible for trade-in, you know, you can you can send stuff back. So it's definitely an area that that, that brands are, are doing more in. On um, Now, the second sub-trend on that is, is sustainable marketing. So I've read a lot of initiatives in, in your report about this. Can you give me a couple of the ones, you, you, nice examples of this? And and also, we know what sustainable marketing means, but just in terms of the context of what you mean by it, um, just to touch on some brand examples. Yes, there's a couple of really good examples that Coca-Cola have been doing. So um, they've done some stuff that, in the States, they've introduced a 100% recycled bottle for, for some of their sizes, um, recycled plastic bottle. And so what they did was they produced a campaign where, you know, not promoting the drink within the bottle, but promoting the bottle itself. And what they were trying to encourage people to do was um, through this campaign, you know, click through to a page to actually pledge to recycle the bottles. So I think that's quite good. It's, you know, it's using the campaign to effectively make try to make the world a better place and mm-hmm. then another thing that coca-cola has done which i think is is absolutely incredibly good in the states is that they're committing to spend a set percent of their media budgets on minority owned media channels so rather than giving all their money to the big players or the big publishers or whatever what they're doing is they're finding some minority owned media channels that are presumably quite embedded in their communities they're spending money with them they're using they're choosing to use them to put their messages out in um, because they want these companies to survive they want to be supporting you know minority-owned startups and things like that Mm. which i think is is really good so so by sustainable marketing what we really mean is um the idea of sort of trying to make the world a better place whether it be through being much more conscious of the, the the climate footprint of the particular campaigns that you're running on particular different sorts of media, but also trying to make the world a better place in trying to increase diversity, trying to increase inclusion, and mm. really just trying to be a good actor in the world. Yeah, yeah, because it is an interest when we think about the area of sustainability. It, it's much much broader than you know product and recyclable products and that kind of stuff in terms of a sustainable planet. There's a sustainable ecosystem in which we operate. So, on on the issue of sustainability, so you mentioned Coca Cola there, and, and there's a lovely example of that initiative where they're supporting minority owned um, channels and media. So, when you think about that, generally speaking, it's a much broader issue, particularly in digital marketing, as you know, local media. They're increasingly going into business in Ireland, effectively going into business, and, and they're not the business they were as more and more money piles into Google and Facebook. Now, I read last week evidence of collusion or allegations of collusion between Google and Facebook that are carving the market up. And, and effectively, I mean, they're strong enough on their own, even to competing against each other. There's a bit of unhealthy competition, but at least it was competition. But if, if there was any collusion going on, that's, that, that's worrying. So I don't know enough about it. I'm not going to get into that. But I just think, in general, do you think that the idea of sustainability in media should apply to supporting local media. And like we all want to shop local, um, support our local high street grocers and producers. And yet when it comes to the media market, we we tend to do the opposite of that. We tend to chase the long tail of inventory. We tend to go pile as much money as we can into, into the lowest cost inventory. And we're not supporting, we don't value um. The, the local publishers do you think that area of sustainability is something that local publishers should latch onto and try and kind of you know i think lobby, so. I think lobby so. for support i think so definitely i think that i think also as 
um, as agencies, we need to be much smarter in sort of realizing that it's not entirely about reach. It's, you know, if if a site only has 100,000 visitors over the course of a month or something, it doesn't mean that that site's no use to us. Those, mm. those visitors probably have a much deeper relationship with the content. I think we see this with, you know, with niche areas like alcohol and things like that as well. One of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is things like craft beer and you know, there's there's a few publications around craft beer where they probably don't get very many, um, you know, they probably don't get all that much traffic. But the people who do read it are probably the people who will, you know, spend 30, 50 quid a month on on, on their drinking habits and stuff like that. And they're, they're exactly the sort of people that you want to meet, you want to reach rather than the more mainstream channels. So, mm. yeah, I think there's there's definitely a business case for looking out the really interesting but smaller channels that you could be working with yeah no i definitely think it's something that i've been I've, I've been kind of thinking about this for a long time and i don't know how to i mean ultimately effectively at the end of the day those things probably cost slightly more money on a on a call it what you want on a click on a on a you know impression level basis but if you if you're to buy the the logic of they probably have a, a more engaged audience um, then ultimately you should deliver better quality of leads through to people and there's less fraud and that kind of stuff so I think it's something that we, we've been certainly looking at locally trying to make sure that we're sustainable and um, like I'll be honest itself sir from our point of view like if, if we live in a world where it's only Facebook and Google you can buy them from anywhere you don't need it if there's no local media you don't you don't need local agencies just hub it all out of London I'll go off and do something else Um so uh, finally, I just want to jump on the last mega trend, which is identity. So um, two of the associated trends in here, you've got underneath that. So firstly, beyond the cookie. Now, this comes up all the time. Here we are talking about it again. I had Kieran O'Kane on two weeks ago and he had a lovely quote. He said, it's starting to feel like the end of a failed marriage now at this stage. Why don't we just get on with it? The world would be far better place if we stopped misusing or abusing the cookie. So what are your views on on the the cookie, the death of the cookie? And, and what does what does context now look like in a post-cookie world? From a brand's point of view, so I think so much, so much innovation is happening around content context at the moment. So the idea of context used to be, you know, it's it's kind of like one of the oldest ideas in advertising. You put your car ad in the car section of the newspaper mm. um, because people interested in cars are going to be reading the car section. But then you actually think people interested in cars also read other sections and things. So it's um, you know, and and one of the earliest successes of Google was the idea that. They could find not only a word that you were searching for on a search engine, but if a particular word appeared in an article, you could put an advert relating to that word, you know, very close by and stuff. So, so context has always been really important with advertising, but with the rise of AI and the rise of sort of greater understanding of what things actually mean and being able to process this at, at massive amounts of scale. We're seeing so much innovation around this. And I was talking to a company yesterday who are they're they I think they're just hiring in Europe at the moment. And I'm I'm hoping to have a chat with them when they're when they're sort of properly open for business here. But they were talking about, you know, effectively creating these these segments of people interested in certain things and stuff, and and talking about. I mean, you know, whenever you talk to an ad tech company, they always talk about, you know, our response rates are through the roof and all that mm. sort of stuff. But, but I know, I know the guy. I've known the guy I was talking to for about twenty years or so, and I, I genuinely trust him to um, to be bringing me something good. So I'm really excited around that sort of stuff. And there's there's you know there's lots of 
interesting technologies around this. For example, if somebody's or if companies bought a, a, a like a cookie-based campaign where they've targeted people that they know the cookies of, what you can do is you can look at the logs of where the ads appeared, um, what response rates were like for those different placements. And then you can go back through those pages. You can look to see what the content of that, what the context of those pages was. And then you can effectively reverse engineer okay. a cookie-based campaign as a context-based campaign. So there's all sorts of really clever ideas, ideas happening around this. And I think given that Chrome is going to stop allowing third-party cooking next year. You know, I think we're almost certain that 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 that's not going to get pushed back again. This is really the final year for for people mm. to be experimenting with new ways to do things and really trying to make sure that when cookies disappear, they can successfully have alternatives. Yeah, because the one thing that we can say is we didn't see this coming. So if you're not ready, I think by the time it happens, we'll have had maybe. 30 months notice something like that well it's over two years anyway of notice in terms of from Google's or close to so um, and Apple's and Apple's done it already yeah so. yeah and what, what so what happened with that rather than rather than accepting this is the way it's going to be let's what happens is money more money piles into Chrome so we, you tend sometimes rather than kind of wean yourself off it you tend to pile more into it while it's available make do as much of it as you can while we can still do it which is kind of a really unhealthy way of thinking about it but so lastly, I won't keep you too much longer. Um, can you talk to me about value exchanges in the context of the mega trend um, identity trend? And so, again, what are the interesting things brands have been doing here and what can we expect to see coming at us this year and, and potentially next year? Sure. So the concept the concept is really that the value exchange with advertising used to be very sort of implicit in that. I watch commercial TV all evening. I get free entertainment, but I know that the entertainment's provided by the advertising that I watch, and and likewise, you know, everything on the internet and stuff like that as well. Um, now that we have a lot of people using ad blockers, now that we have a lot of subscription-based sites, campaigns, and things like that, the the contract is now much more explicit. So, sorry, so that I know that when I watch Netflix, I'm actually paying for the content directly it's not ad funded and and uh, mm. and you know there are other ways to do it so so it's a much more explicit relationship now and likewise with um you know with things like paywalls for newspapers you know that if you're reading the new york times or something you're actually paying for the content and and that's a, a greater thing that that's a greater part of the payment than the advertising now what's happening with brands is that as they're trying to get more first party data they're trying to get people to visit their, their their customers and their potential customers to visit their own sites to see you know interesting con interesting content whether it be recipes whether it be amusing films or interesting tools that will help you you know do things related to the product and as a result when you visit these pages it says you know is it okay for us to give you a cookie is it okay for us to you know do you want to subscribe giving your, your email address so that we can stay in touch with you and, and that sort of stuff as well. So again, it's sort of getting to be a much more explicit relationship in that if you want to access this content, you can probably do it without giving them permission, but actually we'd really like you to, to give us permission because mm. we want we want to build a more, you know, a deeper relationship with you. We saw this, um, and there's lots of examples around this with things like alcohol. We saw a brilliant example of this um, early on in 2020 where, Brewdog uh, did this, put this page up and just said, 
when this is all over, we want to buy you a drink. And it's just register your email address here and we'll send you a voucher for a drink in a brew dog bar when we open again. And it was a pure value exchange. So it's kind of like, we're we're collecting your data, but we're going to give you a drink in exchange for that. And there've been all sorts of versions of that. Um, So effectively, what we see is more of these sorts of activities happening from brands rather than brands brands almost exclusively putting their stuff up on third-party platforms like Facebook or Instagram, but Mm. saying, please come to our own domain because the part of the value exchange is you visit us, we potentially get to cookie you, we potentially get an email address or a phone number or something. And, you know, we want to sort of, we want to give you this value in exchange for that. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense, I think, is that's not bad. That's not a problem. I don't, and I never, I never like, it's not, it's not actually that the cookie will disappear. It's this third party cookies, the misuse and will, will, will be gone. I think, I think the idea of, yeah, if I give my data to a company willingly and I know what they're going to use it for, and I kind of like that company, I want to hear from them or I want, I, w- I want a free beer off them. That's okay. I think it's just, it's the, where else that data goes that I don't know or, or profiting on, on the, on the back of my data was a problem. So, so one overall thing, like London's a pretty big market. Ireland is pretty small. So in the context of overall, of the overall trends, like, like the theatrical release for the Spider-Man movie, there's going to be a planner working on that in Dublin, you know, for the local clients. They're not going to be talking, coming up necessarily with the idea to do NFTs or if we're talking to a, a, a retailer and we have a local brief, we're not going to build their store on the, on the metaverse for them. Um, so a lot of these things are kind of big. They would be possibly be centrally aligned decisions or, or they're not even media or advertising ideas. They're kind of business businesses like opening a new shop. You're going to go into the metaverse and create experiences. It's probably like at the, it's not a marketing idea necessarily. It's going to be from like opening a store, a flagship store somewhere. So um, if you were talking to Irish businesses now, I was putting you in front of a conference of, of Irish businesses and you had to just take your trends, pick your biggest bets. What are the trends that you think you'd be advising businesses in smaller markets to kind of get involved with from an advertising point of view to get involved with and um, to try things and test and learn what are, what are your kind of three things you would do for small markets so i think definitely the contextual based advertising um and i think a lot of these platforms are you know or can be relatively self-serve i think um yeah th- th- there's there's a lot of these things where where you can sort of learn from existing campaigns and, and this can be done at a relatively small level um another one i think is in, in relating to the same same issue is use of influences so i think particularly as it becomes hard to target people by their identity what's great about influences is they bring a certain audience so if you're interested in travel you know then you'll follow some travel influences because they provide that sort of content you know these people bring bring these this sort of qualified these qualified leads with you for the third one i would say um well i mean it depends an awful lot on category but i would say um you know, potentially look out for innovative opportunities around things like delivery, mm. around things like, um, you know, shoppable live feeds or shoppable screens or, or, or things like that. Um, and then also, I think the, well, I suppose also just the whole thing about sustainability. So just being, just making sure that you're authentic, making sure that you're transparent about what mm-hmm. you're doing. Um, we've had a bit of, so I've presented the trends now to quite a few clients. We've had a bit of debate about this in uh, after I've finished presenting. And I was saying, um, I was saying actually, you know, in some respects, it's easier for small brands to do this because the small brands, you know, the founders are still on board. They, yeah. uh, you know, they, they have all these sorts of um, uh, 
you know they have, they have all this sort of authenticity and integrity but actually and they're the more nimble branch, they're more nimble they don't have as much bureaucracy but, involved with them yeah but then but then for the bigger brands somebody said well you know the whole point is that um if you're a big brand what you do can genuinely make a change mm. you know if you change the you know if, if you change the material in your soup pack in your soup cans and you're you know you're supplying 5000 supermarkets around europe or something then you can actually make a big impact yeah. so yeah yeah okay that's great um look the report is great I, I look out for it every year it's brilliant um and we sharing it with clients but for anybody listening where can they find it apart, imagine that people listen they're not dentsu clients and they just say i want to listen to that where is it available is it available for anybody where can they find the report um if they want to have a nosy through it so it should be easily available on the cara and the dentsu website so just google for that but i think if you just google Cara Trends 2022, then links should come up that should allow you to download it pretty easily. I would hope so, given the fact that that's our job. I would hope that that works, that we're optimizing that content to be found on on search. So hopefully, Dan, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, that's all she wrote, folks. We, like, there's really interesting things happening in the and you know the world of media is starting to feel well. It was always exciting. It's actually really, really exciting. It's kind of changes and the opportunities that, that are that are presenting themselves every year are just seem to be accelerating so um thanks dan thanks for joining me thank you thanks and as always uh thanks to andrea on sound and Kira in marketing and our partners at the irish times media solutions who help to keep all this going if you like this episode then listen back to our ever-growing and evergreen back catalog of content you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts or by simply typing irish times inside marketing into your search engine of choice so until next time thanks for listening Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.